All right, so let's talk about justice. And what I want to do in my time is explore with you how the principle of justice has been abused and deconstructed and reimagined by the very people who talk the very most about justice nowadays, namely the social justice warriors. And I want to compare their views with the legal standards of justice that are built into biblical law. And then briefly at the end, I want to point out how the principle of justice has been gloriously upheld and yet transformed by the gospel. It's my contention that evangelicals who adopt the language and the values, or worse yet, embrace the ideology of the social justice movement actually sabotage biblical principles of justice and they subvert the gospel in the process. And so I want to deal with the subject under those three heads. Social justice, biblical justice, and then we'll talk briefly about the superior justice that is the whole basis of the gospel. First, consider justice the way postmodernists reimagine it. The expression social justice has become perhaps the most common buzzword so far in the third millennium. I'm troubled by the way evangelicals have so eagerly adopted and embraced the terminology of social justice. It's unfortunate because what most people throughout our culture have in mind when they use the term social justice involves a massive and deliberate corruption of the word justice and also massive confusion about the basic concept of justice. Justice, in these postmodern times, is as fluid and subjective as any other word. You can easily use that word justice to ennoble or legitimize practically any brand of iniquity you want. And I'll give you some examples of that in a moment. But justice is also a very potent, emotionally laden word. So if you can harness the passion, if you, can, if you can attach this term justice to whatever cause you want to legitimize, you can easily win the propaganda war and even convince most of the world that something that's thoroughly evil is actually an act of justice or vice versa. And that is happening today on a very wide scale. Truth has been turned on its head. Our culture is full of loud voices, including most of the major media moguls, who, in the words of Scripture, call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. They turn the truth around completely. Justice and injustice, righteousness and unrighteousness have traded places in politics and in public discourse worldwide. And it's happened rapidly just in the short span of my lifetime. Anyone with eyes to see should be able to see it. Just consider, for example, the, the results of the social justice movement in America over the, half, the past half decade or less. Black Lives Matter and Antifa are the two most prominent movements that rose to influence on the current wave of social justice rhetoric, and the fruits of their ideology are cities on fire, people being pulled from their cars and beaten into comas, anarchy, arson, vandalism, and carefully orchestrated acts of open and wide-scale violence. And, and it should be clear by now that whatever these movements mean by social justice, has nothing to do with the common classical understanding of what real justice entails. But leftists and progressives understand that if they can successfully attach the word justice to whatever policy they want to advocate, they can easily win the propaganda war because it is such an emotionally laden term. For example, by insisting that abortion is a necessary ingredient of reproductive justice, they not only obscure the real evil of what abortion actually is, they also put their critics off balance. Because does anyone really want to advocate for reproductive injustice? Now think about this. Abortion involves the violent dismemberment of defenseless infants 
while they are still inside their mother's wombs. I think it would be hard to imagine any act, anything that you could do that would be more unjust or more thoroughly diabolical. I can't think of anything. And if you can persuade people that abortion is a good thing by appealing to some perverted principle of justice, then you can do that with virtually anything you want. Anything you want to dignify, attach the word justice to it, and you can, you can gain approval. Socialism, another textbook example of injustice that, if you think about it, has proved brutally oppressive in every culture where it has ever been attempted. And frankly, it's, it would be hard, if not impossible, to sell rank socialism by that name to the average American. But if you call it economic justice, then the socialist agenda, the very same agenda, will poll about 40% higher. Practically any form of tyranny you can you can think of, could be rebranded and repurposed as some new kind of justice, and you will find people are willing to take the bait. And I'm talking about real-world stuff. If we held today a, 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 a real-world referendum on whether the government should ban cows and airplanes in 10 years' time, a proposal like that would get laughed out of court. You, you, you wouldn't get enough backing for anyone to take it seriously. But if you market that very same idea as environmental justice, people line up to support it, and that is happening. Ask people what they think of racial segregation, and you'll have a pretty hard time finding anyone outside the prison population who, who will admit to being in favor of racial segregation but claim that black college students need to have some safe space where white people aren't permitted to go because it's a matter of restorative justice, then suddenly even apartheid becomes a moral imperative. And that's why racial segregation is now being actually militantly defended by the very same people who fancy themselves champions of civil rights. It's a postmodern sleight of hand. And that is precisely what we're seeing in the Antifa and Black Lives Matter riots. Ethnic justice is being used as a justification for acts of violence and arson and theft, even murder. Pretty much everything that was ever condemned under the name of civil rights is now deemed acceptable under the rubric of social justice. Now, I hope you've seen that. YouTube video where the woke guy and the racist can't find anything they disagree on. They both believe everything should be viewed through the lens of race. They both agree that your ethnic identity is the most important and definitive thing about you. They're both in favor of hiring people based on ethnicity. They're both opposed to interracial dating and interracial adoption. They both hate the idea of cultural appropriation. They both insist that black people should shop only at black-owned businesses. In other words, what we used to call racism is back big time, but now we call it social justice. It's pure racism. And it's actually a total perversion of justice, and no one who actually believes and studies Scripture should ever be fooled by it. Samuel Johnson famously said that uh, patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. Maybe he hadn't considered how much mischief a whole gang of scoundrels could do if they hid behind the word justice. You know, deconstructing the word and perverting the very concept of what justice entails. In the book, Cynical Theories, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay describe how people in academic circles are using terms like epistemic justice and research justice to attack the very idea of objective truth. Now, if you start with that assumption that objective truth can't actually even be known, then you're going to hate things like logic and history and science and classical scholarship and even elementary mathematics. And believe it or not, that is the hill 
that most of the academic world today is prepared to die on. Epistemic justice. It's the theory that lies behind the campaign to decry math as inherently racist. So now you have Rochelle Gutierrez. She's a tenured professor at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. She and other people advanced with advanced degrees in mathematics education, although James Lindsay told me yesterday she doesn't have any degrees in actual mathematics, but she's one of the country's best known and leading mathematics educators, and she's arguing that we mustn't be too dogmatic about the fact that two plus two equals four. And that may serve to illustrate the sheer folly of perverted justice. But it's not just funny. It's also fraught with serious dangers and, and copious amounts of unadulterated evil. The fact that so many Christians want to embrace the values and the rhetoric of social justice and fuse that ideology with Christian terminology is frankly an apostasy on the scale of the modernist fiasco that left most of the mainstream denominations spiritually gutted in the first part of the 20th century. It's the same thing being replayed today. And have you noticed that those who write the most words and spend the most energy touting social justice rarely define what they mean by that term? In Thomas Sowell's words, he says, so many advocate what they call social justice, often with great passion, but never with any definition. And Michael Novak likewise says, and I'm quoting him, the trouble with social justice begins with the very meaning of the term. Whole books and treatises have been written about social justice without ever offering a definition of it. It's allowed to float in the air as if everyone will recognize an instance of it when it appears. And Novak goes on to suggest that this persistent lack of any clear definition is deliberate. He says that by keeping the meaning of social justice so amorphous, ideologues have made it an instrument of intimidation for the purpose of gaining the power of legal coercion, he says. And that actually echoes an earlier observation that was made by Friedrich Hayek, who in 1974 won the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics, and in 1991 he was given the Medal of Freedom, is a an important economist. In 1978, he published the second volume of a three-volume work that he wrote, his landmark work called Law, Legislation, and Liberty, subtitled The Mirage of Social Justice. And he said he despised the way this term social justice is being thrown around without ever being defined. Hayek called it an empty formula and a weasel word. He said it's rooted in sloppy thinking and intellectual dishonesty. And he also suggested that these incessant appeals for social justice actually have cult-like religious overtones. He said it's a superstition and a hollow incantation. Those are his words, which he likened to witchcraft. And it was an amazingly prescient observation. Fifty years ago, he said that. Remember, he wrote in the 1970s. <laughs> Since then, social justice has actually become a secular form of pagan religion. They have strict cardinal doctrines, plus their own sacraments and rituals, their own martyrs and hymns. I wrote a blog post on this subject. You can Google it. The title of the article was, Wokeism is a Hateful Religion. And it is a religion with all the elements of it. It's, uh, I think, a manifestation of that emptiness in the human heart that atheists even need a religion of some sort, and this is what they've invented. Friedrich Hayek's publisher, the University of Chicago Press, describes the whole point of his book this way. They say, it's a warning that the continued unexamined pursuit of social justice will contribute to the erosion of personal liberties and encourage the advent of totalitarianism. And that is, indeed, 
the inevitable trajectory. Social justice rhetoric is a tool that progressives use to cloak their socialist aspirations. It's a strategy that's borrowed directly from the neo-Marxist play, playbook. And make no mistake, what they are pleading for is socialism. Listen once more to Hayek. He says, quote, the popular conception of social justice leads straight to full-fledged socialism. He said that 50 years ago. It's still true today. In fact, listen to, there are definitions, if you, if you Google it, you can find definitions of what people actually mean, what they're thinking about when they talk about social justice. Here is what the United Nations says about it. Quote, social justice may be broadly understood as the fair and compassionate distribution of the fruits of economic growth. And also the UN says, again quoting, social justice is not possible without strong and coherent redistributive policies conceived and implemented by public agencies, unquote. Also the dictionary defines social justice this way. In terms of the distribution of, of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. Now, notice in all those definitions, the recurrence of the word distribution, redistribution of wealth and political power. And don't miss this, the real goal is power. Social justice may sound altruistic and humanely charitable, but at the end of the day, what it is, is an ideological power grab. The first document I, I just cited from the UN is a a statement issued in 2006 titled Social Justice in an Open Word, World. Rather. Social Justice in an Open World. It uses the word distribution and its cognates 174 times. And they are specifically talking about, and again I'm quoting, redistributive policies conceived and implemented by public agencies. In other words, this is all about centralized, top-down, mandatory redistribution of wealth and power implemented by a ruling class. That's the very definition of socialism. So to sum up my point, this expression social justice, as it is being used in common parlance today, is heavily freighted with political and philosophical ramifications that are diametrically hostile to the biblical idea of justice. It has nothing to do with Christian charity, social justice. Its roots are neo-Marxist. Its end will be tyranny. <clears throat> and so here's my whole point about this. The large idea that has been signified by the expression social justice is actually a perversion of justice. And that's why evangelical Christians have no business trying to syncretize the gospel and social justice. The two things don't go together. To quote the Almighty himself, you shall not pervert justice. That's Deuteronomy 16, 19, and I will come back to it again, but listen to the context of it. Three verses from Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20. These are Yahweh's instructions to Israel as they began to inhabit the promised land. He said, you shall appoint just, uh, judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment." You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice, you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, the entire Mosaic Code, and, and frankly, much of the rest of Scripture, could serve as an exhaustive commentary on this simple precept. Don't pervert justice. So let's consider justice the way Scripture defines it. Justice is, of course, a major theme in Scripture. But justice, is, as that term is used in Scripture, 
also means something quite different from what you might have in mind when you hear the word justice. In fact, let's be honest. The current generation of evangelicals, for the most part, have not learned about justice from the Bible. Most evangelicals today are working with an idea of justice that owes more to modernism and postmodernism than it does to the Bible. Justice, by the way, is not a theme that Protestants ignored until Walter Rauschenbusch discovered it and launched the social gospel movement in the heyday of Protestants' modernist meltdown a hundred years ago. Rauschenbusch wasn't wasn't introducing an idea from Scripture that everybody had forgotten. He was changing the, the very idea and definition of justice. He simply redefined it so that in his language, justice was all and only about social welfare. Walter Rauschenbusch, of course, is the father of the social gospel. The social gospel was a a liberal theological movement that arose in the first half of the 20th century, swept through the denominations, and ultimately left them all spiritually void of life. Rauschenbusch and his followers traded the doctrines of sin and atonement and personal salvation, along with doctrines like the deity of Christ and all the miraculous elements of biblical truth and Christian belief, they they got rid of those things and traded them for a social agenda that included government welfare and uh, unionization of workers and other political schemes and social programs that they hoped would put an end to slums and poverty and alcoholism and ethnic wars and a host of other social problems so that it was more politics than religion, and to the followers of this idea, that was a good thing. They dismissed confessional Christianity as a set of theoretical doctrines rather than a practical way of life. That was how they thought. We don't need the doctrines of Christianity. We need the practice. And proponents of the social gospel were convinced that social work is the real gospel, a gospel of works. Rauschenbusch and his his followers believed that if they could alleviate the pains of poverty, they would in effect be bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. And the result was a pure, unapologetic, works-based system of religion, inherently and definitionally self-righteous. That's what always happens when you try to modify the gospel in any way. Their message was filled with calls to action and admonitions about what we must do for those to help those who are suffering, and therefore the good news of what Christ has done to save sinners faded into obscurity. They didn't talk about it. So justice eclipsed grace in the language of their confessions. In fact, they openly scorned classical evangelical convictions as pie-in-the-sky theology. You know, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 might, might as well not have, in fact, the whole of Colossians 3 might as well not have been in their Bibles. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. But the social gospel was a kind of neo-Socinian religion. It was a completely earthbound belief system, uh, saturated with religious terminology that that was married to themes that may have sounded biblical, but they were anything but spiritual. This was exactly what Spurgeon was warning about in the downgrade controversy. And it came to fruition with Rauschenbusch and the social gospel. And that movement, the social gospel, began the process of transmogrifying how the church thinks and talks about justice. And near the middle of the 20th century, after all the mainline denominations had already begun to fold, nevertheless, near the middle of the 20th century, some of Rauschenbusch's ideas about justice began to be echoed by neo-evangelicals. 
who, you know, wanted to shed the stigma of unscholarly fundamentalism and, and gain more academic stature, and they thought they could do that by maybe broadening their appeal. And they suggested that, well, okay, we don't believe social work is the whole gospel. Maybe it's still an essential part of the gospel. Because after all, doesn't Micah 5, 6 say, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And so starting in the late 1960s or thereabout, this became more and more a theme that you'd hear from mainstream evangelicals. The Lausanne Committee for World Evangelization made this a major thrust in all of their campaigns. In 1982, they issued a report titled Evangelism and Social Responsibility, subtitled An Evangelical Commitment. And frankly, I think Walter Rauschenbusch would have applauded the document they produced. The word justice, including the expression social justice, permeates the text of that document, and it's clear that what the writers have in mind is the very same kind of socio-political politics that the original social gospel movement had championed. For example, at one point, the document ponders the meaning of the expression salvation, and they say this, quote, is salvation experienced only by those who consciously confess Christ as Lord and Savior, or is it right in addition to refer to the emergence of justice and peace in the wider community as salvation? and to attribute to the grace of Christ every beneficial social transformation. Some of us do not find salvation language inappropriate for such situations, even when Christ is not acknowledged in them. That was mainstream evangelicalism in the late 1960s. Most of you surely are aware of Jim Wallace and the Sojourners Movement. They have been trying since the 1970s to marry biblical terminology and evangelical themes to radical left-wing political causes. And over the past decade or so, two decades maybe, they've been surprisingly successful at persuading younger evangelicals to join their cause. Their whole point is that leftist politics actually, they argue, is more compatible with the teachings of Christ than conservative politics. And one of their most successful strategies has been to assume the the social gospel's neo-Marxist-flavored ideas about justice, and then argue that we are not obeying the biblical commands to do justice unless, unless we are supporting leftist political causes. This was also, as I said last night in the, in the panel discussion, this was one of the central themes of the emerging church movement at the start of this new millennium. The emergents talked nonstop about, nonstop about social justice, and basically assuming but never making the case that the justice spoken of in Scripture is the same idea of justice that was put forth by Walter Rauschenbusch and the Sojourners and the Neo-Marxists. But, and here's an absolutely vital point, if you get nothing else, get this. In biblical justice, the principal concept is not human rights. It's not human rights, it's divine righteousness. That's the underlying idea of biblical justice. And in fact, in both Hebrew and Greek, the words that are translated in English Bibles as justice and just, these are the very same words that are normally translated righteousness and righteous. It's the same word. And and no distinction is made between justice and righteousness in the original text of Scripture. The biblical idea of justice encompasses everything the Bible says about righteousness. Now, because we differentiate, and I think it's a legitimate differentiation between those words, we use them differently, we tend to think of 
justice predominantly as a legal standard or a civic paradigm, and righteousness then is something more personal. But bear in mind, Scripture does not make that distinction. In the Bible, these are not separate ideas. Of the two English words, justice and righteousness, righteousness is actually the more precise synonym. So how comprehensive is this idea? Well, God Himself is the embodiment and the touchstone of righteousness. His character, therefore, defines what justice is. No person or culture that is steeped in unrighteousness and immorality and wicked behavior, unbelief, ungodliness, no one who revels in those things can legitimately claim to be just in the biblical sense of the term. When Moses brought the Ten Commandments down from Sinai on tablets of stone to give them to the people, he said this, Deuteronomy 6.25, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. Moses is saying, you want the definition of justice? Here it is in Ten Commandments. And we're not permitted to reshape or redefine justice to suit the tastes of fallen humanity. <clears throat> and that restriction is entailed in the warning that I read at the outset, Deuteronomy 16, 19, you shall not pervert justice. God's standard of righteousness is not to be edited or revised or reimagined or abridged or modified in any way. The prophet Habakkuk described what happens when justice is perverted. This is Habakkuk 1, verses 3 and 4. And frankly, it sounds, doesn't it, when I read this, listen to it, and you'll think this sounds like the prophet is describing the Portland riots. But this is Habakkuk. Quote, Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So here's the reality. In our culture today, in the name of social justice, justice is going forth perverted. Christians have no business getting on that bandwagon. I hope you understand <clears throat> that social justice is entirely different from biblical justice. Social justice is a twisted corruption of, of justice, and it is not justice at all to redistribute wealth, privilege, and opportunity by force when you take from one group to give to another group nor is it justice to judge people as groups by ethnic identity or gender, social class, or some other group marker by the color of their skin rather than the content of their character. That's not justice. Incidentally, under the principles of social justice, no matter who you are, think about this, if social justice rules, then no matter who you are, you are more likely to have rights taken away from you than given to you. Think about it. Hardcore social justice warriors see it as their bounden duty to tell us what we must give up in order to remedy global warming and protect animal rights and guarantee abortion rights and honor LGBTQ rights and make room for gender fluidity and enable immigration and atone for whiteness and halt the oppression of people who suffer from the inflexible objectivity of basic math, and a cornucopia of similar ideas. All kinds of postmodern and politically correct causes keep getting added to the menu that defines what social justice looks like. This is not an idea that has been shaped by Scripture. It's designed from top to bottom to fit the shape of secular culture. So, what are the principal features of biblical justice? I want to highlight four of them for you. This is not comprehensive. This is a quick overview outline. But four aspects of biblical justice that, that you must not miss, starting with, number one, compassion. <laughs> compassion. I want to start here 
and say emphatically that Scripture does indeed teach that as a matter of justice, we have a duty, both individually and collectively, to meet the needs of poor and disabled and disadvantaged and suffering people in our communities. The, the passages of Scripture that plead for justice do frequently single out the special needs of orphans and widows. <clears throat> and, and Scripture also often stresses the particular duty that is incumbent on people who have means to minister to people who have needs. Rich people who neglect this duty are condemned in the harshest terms throughout Scripture. Listen to James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That's a, that's a pretty strong condemnation, right? That's the New Testament. The Old Testament also taught this same principle. Uh, the Lord executes justice for the fatherless and widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. That's Deuteronomy 10, verse 18. In fact, here's a, a longer sample of the same idea from Exodus 22, verses 21 through 27. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows with your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with, with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. That's the Lord speaking. I am compassionate. And if his character defines what justice is, then compassion, the, the sort of compassion that is described here, is a legitimate part of true justice. There are dozens of cross-references scattered throughout the law and the prophets and the poetic scriptures that urge compassion and, and threaten those who lack compassion with the harshest of judgments. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Or Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And Deuteronomy 27, verse 19, cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. So to ignore compassion is also a perversion of justice. <clears throat> but on this point of charity and compassion, Scripture also includes some provisos that you will never hear from the typical social justice warrior today. And what Scripture teaches is that alms are for, are for the truly needy, not for shiftless, reckless, or irresponsible people. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. That's a principle of justice. Have you ever heard it from a social justice warrior, and even for a widow to qualify for honor and financial support in the church, according to 1 Timothy 5.5, she must be truly a widow, left all alone, who has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers day and night. In other words, authentic biblical justice and compassion discriminates between those who are truly needy and those who are merely 
idle or negligent or, worst of all, stubbornly pursuing self-destructive lifestyles. We're not to enable people like that. In fact, socialist-style welfare is a system that does enable and enslave people like that. It condemns mothers and children to fatherless homes. It systematically perpetuates poverty, and it institutionalizes a, a degrading class system. The American welfare system is not compassionate by any biblical standard, and, and those who refuse to face up to its destructive effects are actually undermining, not upholding, biblical justice. In Mark 9.13, Jesus said to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion, not sacrifice. I think Jesus might say to the average evangelical today, go and learn what true compassion means. If you think you've fulfilled your duty to the poor and disadvantaged by lobbying for government welfare programs, you haven't begun to grasp the biblical idea of either justice or compassion. Here's a second feature of biblical justice, and this is another aspect that you'll probably never hear in connection with all the rhetoric about social justice, but this is a major theme when Scripture talks about justice, and it's this, retribution. Retribution. Because God is just, He will not let one sin go unpunished. The prophet Nahum opens his book with these words. He says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. <clears throat> and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now, notice that juxtaposition of God's patience alongside His vengeance. It's very common in Scripture. Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but He will by no means clear the guilty. His judgments are tempered with mercy, but don't presume on the grace of God, because it is still true what it says in Hebrews 12.29, our God is a consuming fire. And God's fierce judgment against sin is an important aspect of His justice. In fact, justice is not truly done until injustice has been punished. So one of the things the uh, social justice movement has utterly turned on its head. Isaiah 59 is a, a prophecy about justice and vengeance. And in verses 14 and 15 of Isaiah 59, the prophet says, quote, <clears throat> Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. The Lord saw it, and it displeased Him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, no one to intercede, and so the Lord Himself seeks to remedy this injustice. So how does He do it? Verses 17 and 18. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak, according to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. That is describing a severe reckoning. And in fact, in the New Testament, in, in your modern translations, the word that is translated just is uh, dikaios. It's a member of the family of words that speaks of righteousness and justification and justice. Now, here's an interesting detail. You will not find the English word justice as a noun anywhere in the King James Version of the New Testament. It's always translated righteousness. In most modern English translations, there's a different Greek word that has been translated as justice. In the King James, it's always translated judgment, but in modern translations, it's translated, I think more correctly, as justice. And it's the word krisis, 
And what it actually signifies is a judgment in, in the style of a reckoning, a just judgment. It's usually translated judgment. That's, that is its true meaning. And it's an important aspect of biblical justice. There is no justice at all without vengeance against evil. That's true in society as well. Romans 13 says, every legitimate law enforcement officer is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Those are Paul's words, not mine. That's justice. Now I have to move on. Here's a third aspect of authentic justice. Impartiality. I wish I could spend time on this, but Daryl and Virgil have actually covered this very well in several places. Impartiality is the one feature Scripture seems to stress the most when it reminds us that we owe our neighbors justice. Not equality, not equity, impartiality. They aren't the same thing. It's not about equal outcomes or equal incomes. It's not about ethnic quotas that match our population percentages. It's about impartiality in the application of, its, of the law and its penalties and its rewards. It's why justice is always pictured with a scale and a blindfold. This is the classical idea of justice. It's impartial. Authentic justice is always impartial. It's not shaped by ideology. It's not swayed by money. It's not strengthened by passion. It's not spread by hashtags. True justice requires that all systems and judgments and privileges and opportunities, all of them be totally free from preferential treatment based on anyone's skin color or economic class. Social justice with all of its stress on quotas and, and affirmative action actually requires the opposite. That is unjust by any biblical definition. Even the Bible's stress on meeting the particular needs of the poor doesn't overturn this principle. Listen to Leviticus 19.15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Exodus 23, verses 2 and 3. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Don't jump on whatever the bandwagon is. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Deuteronomy 1.17. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike you shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the text we started with, Deuteronomy 16, 19, you shall not pervert justice. The very next phrase says, you shall not show partiality. God is no respecter of persons. He shows no partiality. That's a principle that is incompatible with the current notion of social justice. Now, I need to wrap up. One more aspect of biblical justice, redemption. The, the greatest dif deficiency of all in this neo-Marxist concept of social justice is the way it condemns whole groups of people with no hope and no possibility of absolution. Biblical justice offers full reconciliation and redemption, and this is the final point I want to make. We've talked about the way justice is reimagined by postmodernists. We've talked about justice the way Scripture defines it. Now consider justice the way the gospel applies it. And you may be wondering, if the Bible says justice demands retribution for every wrong that is ever done, if God is too righteous to let any sin go unpunished, how could any sin ever be justly forgiven? And Scripture does say those things. Proverbs eleven twenty one. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished. Exodus thirty four seven. God will by no means clear the guilty. Hebrews two two. Under God's law, every transgression or disobedience receives a just retribution. Jesus said that every sin, even the secret ones, will be brought out in the open and judged. 
Matthew 10, 26. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed. Nothing is hidden that will not be made known. True justice is not accomplished until every demand of God's righteousness is thoroughly and exhaustively fulfilled. And yet, we know that God does forgive. Micah 7, verse 18, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. Numbers 14, 18, it's the same verse that says, God will by no means clear the guilty, also says that He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. So how is that possible? The gospel explains how that's possible. Christ satisfied justice on behalf of those whom he saves. He bore the penalty of their sin when he died on the cross. And so the gospel declares, in Paul's words, his righteousness so that God might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is how God justifies the ungodly without compromising his own justice. In other words, the gospel is not only a message about the love of God. It is that, but it's not only that. True gospel, the true gospel message magnifies God's justice as much as it magnifies his love. And the truth is that God's, if God's judgment, if his justice hadn't been fully satisfied, our salvation would not be possible at all. In fact, all sinners would be, that's all of us, by the way, would be damned forever without any hope of mercy. And that's what Scripture means in Hebrews 9.22 when it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. True justice is satisfied in the gospel. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ has transformed justice so that instead of demanding our damnation, God's justice affirms our redemption. Tamper with the biblical concept of justice and you destroy that truth. You undermine the fundamental truth of the gospel. It is a serious evil. That's why so many of us are so passionately opposed to this notion of social justice, which changes the whole picture and devalues the gospel and is threatening to decimate the evangelical movement at the moment. We must stand together and oppose it. And my prayer for all of you is that you will join the fight with us. Thank you.